You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. We at Represent would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which Sin operates, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sin Media respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Go to school. That's what we're going to do. What do we want? What do we want? What do we want? No! I haven't flipped what. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no, and I'm stuck to it. The English fought a civil war over this matter. Over this matter. Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble. Represent. You're listening to Represent. You're listening to Represent. Um, it's a lovely Friday afternoon. We're here with me today is Bridie George and Sam Hibbins, the MP for Paran. Welcome back to Represent here on Sin. Joining us today is Sam Hibbins, the Greens member for Paran, who also holds the Transport, Education and LGBTI Equality portfolios for the Victorian Greens. Thank you for coming onto the show today, Sam. Thanks so much for um, having me. Yes, you're welcome. How are you finding the lead up to the election and what are your campaign goals for Paran? Um, well, look, obviously election time is a very, very busy period. Um, we're looking to retain Paran. It's one of uh, the Greens' uh, three uh, seats that we have in the lower house in Victoria. Uh, so obviously hoping to retain uh, all of our seats in the lower house and hopefully pick up a few more uh, as well as picking up a few more in the upper house as well. Great. Um, we'll pass on to George. I think he has our first question for you today. Yeah, well, just touching on your your campaign and your campaign for re-election, um, before you came in, Paran was more or less a marginal seat between Labour and Liberal, um, and the Greens, through yourself, have kind of forced your way in there and held on for a few elections now. What, what do you think has made the Greens um, so electable and yourself so electable? Is it changing like demographics or just a change of attitude in general? I think, well, I always saw Paran as a very progressive area, and probably the reason I ran in the first time was because uh, we were this you know, wonderful progressive community, but we were represented literally at every level of government by conservative liberal uh, governments and conservative liberal uh, members. Uh, and so when I ran for Paran for the first time in 2014, we run like a really big people-powered campaign, and so uh, we had hundreds of volunteers knocking on uh, thousands of doors, um, calling voters throughout the campaign. And, yeah, we were very, very fortunate uh, enough to, to, to get over the line there by about 30-odd votes. And uh, we did um, we did the same then in 2018. Uh, and so I think what you're seeing very largely is um, people, uh, I think, recognising the importance of having the Greens, Greens inside Parliament, uh, you know, holding the government to account, you know, pushing them further and faster on issues like climate change and uh, social justice as well. 
But again, I think you're seeing as well this shift away from the Liberal Party, particularly in inner city areas. And that's, you know, was the first Greens ever to win a seat off the Liberals. But now we're seeing Greens take them in places like Queensland. We're seeing the Teal movement. So I think that's got a factor as well. Yeah, so it's kind of like all linked together, I guess, the federal politics as well, which we've seen at the start of the year, mm. maybe follows on through the state elections as well. Um, so my question is about education. Obviously, mm. you're the you know you hold the portfolio for yeah. education. So I read in the Age that Victorian schools are the lowest funded public schools in the country, with not mm. even seventy five percent of the standard of funding being met, and we don't even have commitment from governments that's reached a hundred percent of mm. what we need. Mm. Um, as the education spokesperson, what can you explain to us the Greens' policy on improving the standard of Victorian education? Yeah, well, look, you're absolutely right. So Victorian schools are some of the lowest funded in the country. We're short of about oh, about a billion dollars every year. Victorian schools are underfunded. And that's when it's compared to what's been recommended by that whole Gonski review uh, and what's called the, the school resourcing standard about what they should actually be receiving. Uh, and so what we're really keen to do is, uh, number one, uh, increase uh, the Victorian government's share of school funding, uh, get that up to 75% as soon as possible by the start of the 2023 school year. That's an extra $1.4 billion directly into schools. And then uh, push the federal government to increase their funding as well. So the state-federal school funding agreement expires in 2023. We want to see both state and federal governments work together to make sure Victorian state schools are fully funded. And what that can then support... Uh, is more teachers, more support staff, better support for disadvantaged students and getting back to actually genuinely free public education. I mean, you really, parents have to stump up about $2,500, if not more, for school costs every single year. What we should be going back to is public education should be genuinely free education. That's great to hear. Um, kind of staying on this uh, school theme... Uh, we had Dr. Matthew Bark on last week, as you know, and we asked him a question about a law that Matthew Guy hopes to reintroduce, which I believe would allow faith-based schools to preference people of their own faith in matters of employment. And obviously there are worries that this new law could lead to discrimination against the LGBTIQA plus teachers. So since you hold the LGBTI equality portfolio, can you speak to what the Greens is going to do if elected to strengthen those laws that mm. um, protect, protect the queer community against discrimination? Yeah, so those laws are really, they've really been a, a passion of mine since I was first elected. And in fact, in day one of this current parliament, you know, I introduced a bill to protect uh, LGBTI students uh, at faith-based schools from discrimination. And I was really pleased that recently this year, uh, we've finally seen legislation pass uh, state parliament that really went a very long way to making sure that uh, all students are protected uh, at faith-based schools. I think there's more to be done uh, and there's certain ways you can go about that. I mean, certainly I'd like to get rid of uh, these exemptions in the Equal Opportunity Act, which is which allows for discrimination. Just get rid of them completely. Uh, no school uh, should be able to discriminate on, on the basis of sexuality or gender identity, full stop. Um, but there's also strengthens to the current model that we have. So for, uh, making sure that, for example, a, uh, a student that um, changes their gender identity or comes to terms with their sexuality within during the, 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 their time at a school, that they can't be then discriminated against uh, them because that is just, it's just an untenable situation. It's really these are insidious laws um, that shouldn't be allowed to stand. Uh, students should be safe at every single school that they go to. 
So how would you um, kind of find the right balance between having religious freedom and also protecting these communities. You know, the, the argument is that we need religious freedom, but where's, where's the right balance between that and also, you know, having a safe place to, for people to go to school? For everyone well, to I go certainly to don't think religious freedom uh, is then licensed to then discriminate against people on the basis of sexuality and gender identity. And I hear that a lot from, you know, faith organisations themselves. Uh, there are so many... Um, uh, gay and lesbian and trans and gender diverse um, Christians and Jewish people and, and Muslims and all across the, the religious uh, spectrum. And the idea that in order to have religious freedom, you need to then provide freedom to discriminate. No, that's just untenable. And we shouldn't have that here in Victoria or anywhere, quite frankly. Yeah, great. Okay, so moving on to transport a bit now. Um, as we heard last week from um, Dr. Matthew Bark, Labor's promising to hugely expand our public transport network with the suburban rail loop, as we've heard a lot about, which will be a huge use of funds, whereas the Liberals are promising to shelve this project and put the money into revamping the health system and hospitals, etc. But could you explain to our listeners the Greens' stance on this issue? Mm-hmm. Well, we're supportive of the suburban rail loop. Um, it is a big investment, um, but obviously it's going to be a significant, um, a significant change and expansion of the public transport network. Where we're concerned is a couple of areas. Number one, I'm concerned that they're not doing the job right. Already we're seeing uh, stations where the station location just doesn't match up with the existing station and these connections aren't there. Um, We're seeing concerns about um, how the airport would then connect to other parts of the suburban rail loop. You don't want to sort of have this big grand announcement and then have the government running around sort of chipping off bits in here and trying to save money bits in there. They need to get it right. But the main thing, uh, what we really need and what our public transport system needs overall and to make the suburban rail loop work is making sure that we're running uh, as many services as possible on the existing network, particularly with the suburban rail loop. I mean, you've got waits of 15, 20 minutes, half an hour really on lines now right out to Melbourne suburbs. People aren't going to catch the suburban rail loop if they're having to wait 20 minutes at one, one stop and then 20 minutes to get on another train. That's just not going to work. And so to reach its full potential and for the whole network to reach its full potential, uh, you can actually run far more frequent trains during the day, late at night, on weekends, uh, around five to ten minutes. Uh, And that's separate from building new infrastructure. That's just getting the most out of the infrastructure that we have now. Yeah, and just kind of keeping on transport here, um, in the federal budget we heard a little bit about proposed cuts to taxes on electric cars, improving electric vehicle charging networks, infrastructure. Um, but on top of that, um, the Green, the Victorian Greens in itself have proposed the electric vehicle uptake plan. Can you tell us a little bit mm. about that mm. and what, what it kind of entails? Yeah, so our um, electric vehicle rapid uptake plan really identifies that now is the time uh, for rapid uh, you know, acceleration, pardon the pun, uh, of the uptake of electric vehicles. And that's because emissions from carbon emissions from transport. It's Victoria's biggest growing source of carbon emissions where most other sectors are going down, transport's going up, and that's largely due to the petrol car. And so um, significantly reducing the cost of electric vehicles uh, now. Uh, We're still way off between price parity between electric vehicles uh, and petrol cars, uh, as well as rapidly rolling out uh, electric charges and then axing Labor's uh, electric vehicle tax, which is just having a tax now, a standalone tax now on electric vehicles when we're actually trying to drive uptake um, is just the wrong approach. Uh, And so reducing those upfront costs, 
uh, as well as you know supporting people to switch to other sustainable forms of transport as well, obviously bike riding and, and public transport as well. So were you satisfied with the federal budget and how they kind of mentioned um, like there won't be, there'll be cuts to taxes on electric cars, but not necessarily like an abolition of the electric car tax? Well, no, I think they need to go a lot further. Where we can go at a federal level, I think they need to offer much more significant subsidies, but they also need to set a really clear end date for the sale of petrol cars and really set that signal to the manufacturers, send your electric vehicles here, not your polluting cars, which they're doing now, uh, and strengthen fuel standards as well. So we have, pretty much across the world, the most polluting cars um, in the world. Uh, and that's due to our really lax uh, fuel uh, and emission standards on our vehicles. Uh, and so manufacturers are sending their most polluting cars here to Australia. We need to fix those standards, set a high standard, uh, set the end date for petrol cars, and really that will go a long way uh, to breaking down those barriers for the uptake of electric vehicles, getting more models and more more types of electric vehicles here in Australia. Right. Thank you for coming on the show, Sam. Yeah, thank you. Welcome back to Represent on Sin. I have an interview done by Tess McCracken with the independent candidate for Bayswater, Chloe McCullough. Here it is on Sin. My name is Tess and joining me today is Chloe McCullough and you're listening to Represent on Sin. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chloe. Thanks for having me. Now, you're an independent candidate running for the seat of Bayswater. What can the Bayswater community get from you that they can't get from any major electorate parties that you'll be running up against? Oh, my God, so many things. Um, I think the two biggest things that I think that um, myself and independents in general provide is, one, a direct voice into Parliament. Um, the problem when you elect a major party to represent you, um, that candidate is often has to toe a party line, um, you know, there's split loyalties as far as um, strategic, you know, uh, statewide things that are happening, um, whereas independents can provide a direct voice where they only answer to the voters themselves and their constituents. They're not tied to any kind of um, either loyalties or um, agendas. And so there's that sort of, you know, in its core, independent representation that we sort of provide as an option. Um, the second thing is for, I guess, for me personally, um, I sort of am a bit different to most political candidates out there. Yeah, I'm not a great politician at all. I'm a scientist. I'm a young person. I'm queer. I'm trans. Um, I'm kind of, I think I represent, again, a different option in the way that uh, sort of represent a representation of who the community is. Um, you know, my main two competitors in this are incumbent career politicians who are straight white men. Um, we've got a lot of that in politics, and we don't have a lot of people like me. Um, and so, you know, there's that sort of diversity um, that I provide, you know, not just me, obviously. I think we need more young people in general, more queer people. Uh, more scientists and people with diverse experiences running for politics. I think that politics will run best when a diverse range of views are are offered and presented. Um, that's how best decisions are made by having a diversity of views to find what be works best for everyone, not just two major parties who are very similar in a lot of ways, making all the decisions. <laughs> and like you said, you know, you're a scientist. You have a PhD in astrophysics and a career in climate data. 
what made you enter into politics? <laughs> um, I'll go back a bit if you want, because the reason I the reason I ended up doing this is, I mean, I did it for a lot of somewhat personal reasons to a degree. So kind of like, you know, my experiences um, feed into that. I grew up in the church. I grew up very, very religious um, in, in the evangelical kind of sphere. It was extremely damaging to me. Um, I, you know, I had a lot of experience, a lot of bullying, discrimination for a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. I was taught a worldview that I have very much purged from myself now, but it dominated my life for the first 20 years. You know, I was raised to be a climate denier and to never question anything and to not question science and that science is kind of bad in general. Uh, and so when I, when I finally kind of got out of that, I, um, I went to uni and I studied astrophysics largely because I didn't know anything about the world and I wanted to just learn as much as I could. So I just went to the absolute largest scale I could think of. Um, when I, by the time I got to the end of my PhD, I realized that environmental advocacy and making change with regard to climate change, the biodiversity emergency, you know, protecting wildlife species, that was ultimately what I was most passionate about and what I wanted my career to really mean and have an impact in, um, which is why I then transferred over and I um, now work in climate science. I, I did that because I knew that, you know, the skills that I had were applicable to that field. And so it was a field that would then provide sort of a way for me to have an impact on preserving the environment, which is ultimately what I want to work towards and contribute to. I, I love working in climate science. And, but I realized over the last few years that I really wanted to get more involved at a kind of a smaller scale or local scale and have and do more environmental advocacy um, and have a bit more of that direct impact, <laughs> which is always what I'm kind of uh, seeking. And so I started looking for opportunities to get involved locally, to, um, you know, what environmental concerns were around um, in sort of my area in this Bayswater, I live in Baronia. Um, and so I very quickly found the situation of Lake Knox, which is a um, which is a lake in the electorate that the state labor government planned to uh, fill in and bulldoze and replace with houses. Um, this is a, a lake that it was originally built as a dam, uh, became naturalized, meaning that nature came in and kind of built an ecosystem around it. It's not connected to stormwater. It's very fresh and very clear. Um, and it's developed quite a rich ecosystem that supports dozens and dozens of species of birds, insects, frogs, uh, native grasses, na uh, you know, threatened native uh, duck species as well. Um, and there just is a very, very bad plan to basically demolish that entire ecosystem. Um, and so I, I sort of went, oh my God, this is an awful situation. This is also something I can get involved with directly. Um, and so when I, when I uh, started contacting this group, I realized that coming up to the state election, they really wanted to um, put up their own independent candidate who represented their interests because they felt like the major parties were just not representing, that were kind of latching onto this issue, issue and just using it for kind of leverage. They wanted someone who wasn't a career politician to stand up, who was a bit different and to uh, run specifically on uh, the, this issue and the surrounding issues like uh, community health and general environmental conservation. Um, so someone who was really representing them. And so I thought, why not? This is a chance for me to make a bit of change and 
try something new um, and have kind of a direct uh, impact into environmental advocacy. And so like you said, a big part of your campaign is the preservation of Lake Knox, something that a large proportion of the Bayswater community is also calling Uh for. Now, Nick Baker, Liberal for Bayswater, has also proposed a three-point plan. Now, that involves calling for the lake to be saved, an advisory group to be established to determine the future of the lake, and the consideration of designating the lake as a sanctuary. Now, I want to ask, what is your plan to save the lake? And just how is this a better plan than any of the other plans being put to the public? That's a really good question. Nick's plan is, it's not very inspiring, i got to say. Point one on the plan of how to save Lake Knox is save Lake Knox, which is kind of a bad number one. Uh, And then his final point has consider it. And it's got very, politicians are very conscious about when they use strong language and when they use weaker language. And consider and maybe maybe we'll do something i guess if you elect me which you know i guess it's very uh non-committal and i found it to be kind of pathetic because it's not really actually uh digging into the issues um my three-point plan that i've developed involves declaring a planetary health emergency at the state level making sure that we're not just talking about climate change we're talking about um loss of green space we're talking about ecosystems being destroyed it opens up a conversation around um, what kind of development are we doing how are we sourcing this and how can we do it better for the environment um, and so we've got we've got real issues as far as the health of the planet not just related to climate change biodiversity emerging emerging diseases to actually try and tackle that uh, head on um, my second point is to instead of we have consultation. We've had a lot of consultation. So Nick's second point is to just consult more. We've had about five or six years of consultation, community consultation on this issue, and not a single thing about the plan has changed. They haven't. It's been fake consultation where they made all the decisions, came and talked to us, ignored everything we said, and continued with their original plan. That's what they mean by consultation. So my second point is to co-design instead. This is a um, this is a more much more well-rounded approach to community development and projects of any kind, where you're not just making the decisions and then consulting and then maybe taking into account that consultation without any real commitment to do so. But it's a commitment to co-design to make sure that the input from the people, the stakeholders, being the community in this case, are actually taken into account in the formation of the plan itself. So it's a much deeper consultation and then just this general consultation. Um, and my third point is to assess the actual scientific benefit of Lake Knox itself. Um, the state government issued um, some very preliminary analysis of the site to understand, try and understand what species are there, how rich this ecosystem and some details about it. They did a very preliminary analysis and then basically buried it all because um, from what I'm, you know, uh, from what I uh, understand, they didn't really find what they liked. They wanted to make sure that there was no real documented information about the true biodiversity and ecological value of Lake Knox. Uh, and then they've kind of just buried it all and continued on and not actually done a thorough analysis. So my third point is to actually perform a proper scientific analysis of Lake Knox, which should have been done at the beginning of this process. So we know Nick's wanting the same outcome, fighting mm-hmm. for it in a very different way. Yep. Looking at your campaign as a whole, what is your point of difference? 
below beyond Lake Nux, when you look at Nick's other policies that have nothing to do with save lake, saving Lake Nux, they have nothing to do with environmental conservation, or they've, um, they've got a policy around uh, hospitals, but I would argue that that's largely in response to Labor's promises to do hospitals in a slightly different way. And so it's just, it, we've kind of got two hospital policies from the two major parties that are very similar in a lot of ways. Um, there's not, he hasn't really considered why people care about Lake Knox beyond that they do. He's put it on his posters. He's got a very top level kind of average plan to, to save it. Um, and that's about all he's done. He otherwise, when he approaches his other policies, um, they, they really have no, no mention of this to any degree. He's not, he represents the Liberal Party who are known to be even worse for the environment than Labour Party. And he knows that, which is why they don't have any environmental conservation policies. My policy platform is built around the issues that brought people to Lake Knox. I, I've spent the last, um, spent this year talking to the community, trying to understand why people care about Lake Knox so that I'm not just running to save one lake, but I'm running on a platform of these, are, this is why people care about this issue. People care about the ongoing environmental destruction that's happening, not just saving one lake, but saving the rest of the lakes, saving creeks, saving open space, producing more recreational facilities outside, which brings me to my next one, which is community health a more local approach to health, not just building big hospitals and hoping that we can funnel people towards hospital resources. That's bad use of healthcare resources. We actually need to work on prevention, public health, local GPs, bulk billing, large clinics, access to uh, more niche um, community services that are not accessible in the area, like medical abortion, transition healthcare, things that I know I've personally had to go and experience and, and access very far away from Bayswater, uh, Geelong, in fact, which is a far way to go for healthcare that I need on a regular basis. Um, we need to focus a bit more locally and resource healthcare that is community-based, locally accessible, and not just hospitals, but GPs and frontline uh, healthcare. And the last one is that people care a lot about development, how it's being approached. People don't want to see this unending development, constantly just taking away open space that can be used for recreational facilities. People are worried about, um, you know, the the uh, the houses, the townhouses that they plan to build on the site are extremely small. That it, they don't have to apply for individual permits for each one. They don't follow. They can basically bypass a lot of the environmental rules. They're under no obligation to build these sustainably, energy efficient. There'll be no social housing. There'll be a very very small amount of what they call affordable housing which is very unconvincing that that's <laughs> appropriate because we, we're talking about million dollar houses or $600,000 houses with a tiny little 10% discount. We're still pricing out very a large amount of people who actually want to buy homes. Um, and so this, this approach to just unending development without real thought about longevity and sustainability, people are really concerned about. So those are my kind of, that might build my platform around what the community actually cares about, not what the Liberal Party or the Labour Party care about. Mm. And on your website, you also stated that one of the reasons you decided to run for Parliament is to make sure the voice of young people is heard. I want yeah. to know just how you plan to do that should you be elected. I want to, when I when I get elected, 
if I get elected. Um, I really I want to be able to talk to young people in this area regularly. Um, tomorrow night, although once this airs, it'll be last night. I'll have held held a young adult forum. Um, the first of future ones I'd, I'd like to think um, where I, I'm just going to getting together different young people from the community we're talking uh, 18 to kind of early 30s I'm early 30s so I'm kind of at the higher end of that um, to just hear and listen to what they want to talk to me about the community that I've largely connected with um, so far through like through like Knox and environmental um, uh, advocacy in the area it's been largely a um, slightly older audience, um, you know, sort of people in their 50s and retirement age, uh, largely because retirement age people have a lot more time to volunteer at local community events, whereas young people are studying very hard, working very hard. I know I'm very, working a, a lot as well. Um, Full-time work is extremely tiring and doesn't give a lot of time for volunteering to a lot of the things that a lot of people would want to get involved with. Um, and so I, I want to make more of a targeted effort to connect with young people. There's um, queer groups at Knox um, City Council and other young groups. So I'd really like to be able to connect through them. Um, and just identifying you know, people who want to talk to me, who care about issues and want to make sure that they're represented. I want to connect with anyone who wants to talk to me about anything that they're interested in. So it's really just, I want to connect with more and more people to get that idea of um, what people actually want and need. And lastly, for young people wanting to get into politics, what do you say to them? What are your tips? Just do it. Um, I knew nothing about politics at the start of this year. I had never been politically um, really active in any way. Um, I kind of, I, I saw it as an opportunity to learn something new, get involved with a different sphere of sort of society and decision-making that I haven't been connected to in the past. And I just kind of just went for it and just learned what I could, had a go. I'm just giving it a go. That's really all I'm trying to do. So I would say just uh, get involved any way you want. If you if you like the Greens Party, contact them and say, I'd love to volunteer, hand out how to vote cards at the election. Um, contact an independent in your area if you'd like to support them and literally just stand out and hand, hand out how to vote cards at pre-polls. Um, I, when I, I did, uh, I handed out how to vote cards for the Greens at the federal election and I found it to be incredibly informative, um, two hours of my life where I saw a cross section of the community that I hadn't really experienced from that perspective before. And it was really, really awesome to see. So there's so many different ways that you can just dip your toes in, see what there is. You don't have to run for politics. Um, but just having, having a look and getting involved and seeing what, you know, it's like. Okay. Well, Chloe, thank you so much for joining me today. It was really great to thank talk you. to you. Thanks for having me. You're back on Represent here on Sin. That was Tess McCracken with the Bayswater Independent candidate, Chloe McCullough. So we've got a special, a budget special. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's get right into it. Take, Take it away, it George. away <laughs> I don't know if you can call it a budget special, but... I think it is. It's my interpretation of the budget, at least. And obviously, earlier this week, there was the budget that came out. Um, Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, 
kind of outlines what will be included and what would affect Australia over the next six months or so. So um, to kind of pre-emphasize how the budget was categorized by the general public is that um, it was more sense of kind of damage control, a little bit like anticipating that we're going to come up with some probably difficult economic times in the future. So they were trying to mitigate the rise of inflation as much as they could. Um, Jim Chalmers was quoted as saying it's a responsible, affordable and sustainable um, budget. It provides cost of living relief, which is responsible and not reckless to make life easier for Australians without adding to inflation. So to kind of juxtapose how this was to the last um, budget in the sense where the last budget was kind of just a campaign budget and they kind of utilized everything they could to Everyone was a winner, basically, whereas here, not there aren't as many winners, I guess you could say. Um, so I, I'll outline the winners and the losers of the budget, or at least some of the key ones, because I can't go through everyone due to time. Um, but one of the first things that stood out to me was um, students. So the university sector, according to the ABC, is due to get a 485.5 million boost for 20,000 additional Commonwealth-supported places over next year. Um, the places are for courses in areas of skill shortages and dedicated to those who are underrepresented in higher education, um, including First Nations people. And uh, on top of that, there was free TAFE. Um, over the next five years, the government will provide over $8 million to provide 480,000 free TAFE places in industries and regions with skill shortages. Um, and next year... There's going to be an additional 180,000 free TAFE um, vocational educational places. Um, so the, there were a few positives for young people and students especially, but it has also raised a few questions. Uh, I'll touch on what happened on Q&A the other night where Sonia Arakal, the co-founder of Think Forward, basically kind of criticised the Labour government um, in the way it addressed young people by saying that there's nothing for young people and there's nothing for rent assistance. There's nothing for youth allowance and job seeker, the things that help young people and young working people who plan to forward their career amongst the cost of living pressures. Um, it's almost the same old story of politicians chasing the grey vote and not sending the money to where it actually needs to go. The job, the job seeker payment remains at $334 a week for a single person with no children, which is widely considered to be below the poverty line. And I want to ask a question about something, a quote or something that was said from the Labor Senator. Um, Labor Senator Gallagher said that the government's climate spending was part of the youth spending, basically. Do we think that that's kind of a cop-out or is climate spending... It, for me, at least, it seemed like the burden was kind of put on young people and how climate is treated. What did you guys think? I don't think it's mutually exclusive to spend money on you know, fixing climate change or mitigating climate change and things like job seeker, And, you know, like you can have it both ways. Um, I think, yeah, I think it is a cop-out to say we're not raising job seeker because we're putting more money into climate change. Like that just, come on, you can, yeah. like you can do better. Yeah, it, it's a, you know, it's a worldly issue. It's not mm. just, you know, you make those climate incentives regardless of like, whatever political baggage you have. so And the climate incentives aren't actually good enough to get us where we need to be. Exactly. So I don't think many young people would have bought that claim that 
yeah, climate spending was for the youth of the nation and that could somehow be seen as, you know, a positive for young people. But regardless, I'll move on to some of the other winners. Um, the ABC, obviously the coalition had a lot of cuts over their tenure in governments. So more or less as part of their campaign promise, there was an $83.7 million over four years in funding to the ABC. The money that was cut in 2018 saw a loss of 250 jobs at the ABC as well. So maybe that will be rectified. Um, on top of that, families, one of the centerpieces of the government's budget and its election campaigns. So there was $4.7 billion spent on childcare over the next four months. The changes subsidizes for families and raise the maximum subsidy rate cap to 90% with the goal of providing universal childcare for about 90% of people, of families, sorry. Um, then going on further, it's announced that from July next year, there will be a start to increase the amount of government paid parental leave to reach 26 weeks by 2026. Another winner was renewables. Uh, the labor budget has a renewable energy as one of its key priorities. It essentially went through a few different initiatives like we mentioned before with Sam Hibbins. There was a few more going towards the electric vehicle charging network infrastructure and providing community batteries and solar banks. The budget also included $500,000 to be spent to develop a strategy in the future to enable the government to support offshore renewable projects in Australian waters. And one of the other niche little things I thought was interesting in the budget was that in the Asian Pacific, there will be a boost in foreign aid by about $900 million over the next four years, um, which is an increase from the previous $375 million. I guess it's kind of... in in order to combat the rising influence of China in the region as well. You and my favourite topic to talk about, and Mimi's least favourite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's an important topic. So I think it's I really interesting. It in it's super fascinating. <laughs> Why don't we have a great conversation about it right now? No, I'm just kidding. Let's keep going. <laughs> um, okay, thanks for that, Brady. You're welcome. Um, and so I'll touch on where a lot of the criticism came from, and I guess the losers... So I'll preemphasize this by saying a quote from Jim Chalmers before the budget actually came out. Um, so more or less he said, and I'm quoting right now, the budget will confirm the stark deterioration in the outlook for global growth and in several major economies with some at risk of falling into recession. So, you know, basically saying that the the budget will kind of symbolize the, the global pressure on economies around the world and how it's not going to look pretty. Uh, so he kind of got a little bit of bargaining power there, I guess. Uh, he he put a yeah pretty grim picture on the immediate future, and the budget definitely backed up his his comments. So a global forecast um, shows that there'll be a downturn mixed with rising inflation and the pressure on the federal government to provide disaster payments in the wake of the floods are all going to weigh heavily on the economy, and also obviously the COVID payments that previously were put in place. Uh, the budget papers show GDP growth falling by a quarter of a percentage point to 3.25% this financial year, and again falling by 1.5% the next year. Uh, thanks to sky-high commodity prices and surging inflation, the budget bottom line will improve by $40 billion. Our, and I'm quoting again here of Jim Chalmers, our economy is expected to grow solidly this financial year by 3.25% before slowing to 1.5% the following year in 2023 to 2024. So at the end of the day, it, it is a long-term 
plan this budget for the economy, but it does give a pretty gloomy outset for the for the near distant future. And going on to that, the wages haven't really matched inflation, and the budget doesn't really incentivize the fact that wages will match the current inflation rate of seven point seven five percent by December. Um, workers' pay is expected to go even backwards until twenty twenty four to twenty twenty five. So, you know, it's it's not looking pretty for a lot of, like, the middle class, especially, I think. Um, what, what do you guys think of it, economically speaking? Uh, you, I mean, it's definitely gloomy. Um, I mean, I'm doing economics and I'm in my revision period before my exam. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've been writing all these notes about how there's these high commodity prices and all year we've been talking about how, like, there are these kind of good signs, like it's a very strong labor market. There's lots of like job vacancies and things, which is a good thing, which doesn't quite compute in my brain. But anyway, a lot of economics doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, but like we're sort of not really in this great growth period because we've got this crazy inflation and stuff. So it's all just kind of very mixed signals, you know, yeah, but it's, definitely not positive. <laughs> it's interesting to see how the unemployment rate still remains pretty low, even in the, in the name of such economic pressures through inflation um i guess one of in peter dutton's reply speech he said that it was a missed opportunity for the labor government to kind of incentivize uh backing of the working force um i'll quote by saying that of peter dutton that the treasurer failed to mention in his speech what labor's budget papers verified that everything's going up except your wages uh in reference to labor's campaign slogan and Cost of living, power prices, taxes, interest rates, unemployment, and the deficit are going up or will be going up in the future. So, yeah, it's it's really not not looking amazing in my eyes. So, maybe were you satisfied by anything you heard in, in the budget or do you think it's just a whole lot of doom and gloom? I think it really is just a whole lot of doom and gloom, really. But I also feel like, I think I actually agree with the like, subsidy, subsidy for energy. I feel like that would be like a nice... Like, just kind of how they did the petrol. Like, not exactly the same, but some kind of, like, initiative. Because I feel like that will be the most, like, pressing issue for, like, just households in general. I think it'd be nice to have some kind of, like, positive. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's okay. (laughs) Like, I kind of feel like at this point, like, it's fine for the budget to be doom and gloom. Like, what did, like... What did anyone expect? But it'd be nice to have a nice little, like... like, one nice You know, everything sucks, but, like, here you go. Yeah. This is a little, like... Nice thing we're doing. For all yeah, well, like, I think so too. And for me, that's the extra funding for universities, mm-hmm. um, obviously. Um, like, the huge hikes in the uni-, uni fees a couple of years ago is of great concern. Can for us? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Don't make me pay 14 grand a year to study yeah. arts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's always, is, so. like, just, you know, going on that we're all, like, you know, flimsy art students here, right? Yeah. So, like, we all know the <laughs> pressures that... You, I guess it gets a bad rap, especially in the coalition, but you'd think, like, under a Labour government, they understand the, the notion value. of the value of critical thinking and, exactly. and all these important <laughs> units. But, yeah, and, and just touching on what you said before, maybe, like, energy subsidies, like, have been seen around the world, especially in Europe, but not so much in Australia. So, you know, maybe that would have been a nice little Easter egg that they could have thrown in there for us, but <laughs> yeah. I guess it's not to be... 
I just think some like even when we were talking about the budget just before the federal election, like there were some few like little Easter eggs. I feel even then. Well, yeah. I mean, then it kind of made sense because it was such a campaign sort yeah. of budget. I guess and it, I it guess had a fixed interest. Had. But it'd be nice for that <laughs> to come on and keep going. Yeah, I mean, like the one of the Echo case studies we know is like the lower middle income tax offset, and that's like people who earn under like 120 grand get 1500 bucks back at tax time. Like, it'd be great to have one of those. Mm. I also thought it was funny, like, how there's going to be, like, a maximum subsidy for 90% of, like, families of childcare. Like, who's the 10%? (laughs) Like, who's going to be the 10% who don't get that? Like, I'm like, who will that be? Yeah, that's true. May as well just make it 100, I guess, they can put it in the budget. So, um, I reckon we'll go... Should we maybe skip a song and we'll just go straight into your little PM segment and then... Oh, we... Yep, go for it. Yeah, I reckon. Let's do it. Let's do it. So we're going to do a super, super quick segment um, about the UK. So we've had some political chaos over there. Last week we saw Liz Truss resign as PM after weeks of turmoil in the Tories and only 45 days as Prime Minister. So she's their shortest reigning Prime Minister. Actually, in Australia, we've had three PMs for less than 45 days, but I can't remember who they were. Anyway. Was one of the was one of them Kevin Rudd? I don't think so. No, no, no. Ah, oh, um, who is the person who like? This is obviously like key political knowledge that I should know. That like kicked Julia Gillard out. Oh, it was Kevin. Rudd. Oh, it was Kevin Rudd. Yeah, but, but it, no, it was still was longer, than longer than forty five days. days. Oh. Yeah. So Liz Truss, kind of, what was her downfall among other things was that she gave this budget that reduced taxes on the rich and on businesses, and so it was wildly unpopular because of the cost of living pressures that are across the globe, as we've just heard, they're here as well, but they're in the UK too. So because it was so wildly unpopular, she got kicked out by the Tories. Um, She actually resigned, but I think we can kind of infer that there was a lot of, if you don't go, we'll push you behind the scenes. She's been replaced by Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is like the Treasurer, and the first PM of Colop, and one of the richest MPs in Parliament. Fun fact. (laughs) He's already been criticised for saying that he won't attend the COP27 climate summit and it's possible he'll recommend to King Charles not to go as well, which I thought was really interesting. Why? Well, Liz Truss was going to do that, apparently. Not go? She was possibly going to go for a day, but she was probably going to recommend to the king to not go. What, they have too much on their schedules? No, I think it was because she didn't want him to. (laughs) Wait, why? Am I like... Well... I think it's just because she's the Tories and she doesn't want to spend more on climate yeah, exactly. change was so, kind of the vibe I got from articles that I read. That's what I thought, yeah, as well yeah. from that. I don't know if there was any other fixed agenda to it. but No, I mean, yeah. it wasn't personal, I don't think. <laughs> but he went last year. He went to COP26. Oh. It was in Glasgow. Can I just butt in and Go I want to ask a question, right? How much of this... Okay, so obviously the first person of colour uh-huh. um, in, you know, first prime minister... How much of it do we think is an is it linkable to Obama and his election in two thousand eight? <laughs> is there any like alliance with the change that Obama was supposed to bring, or is it completely different? Do you mean like? Isn't it an Obama movement for England? I don't think so. I think it's kind of the only option that they had mm. because I mean, who else is there in the Tories that's had? He's got. He's had a big profile. He was chancellor over the pandemic. You know, he um, was relatively successful until his wife started being accused of using tax havens to get out of paying tax. Um, oh, yeah. That kind of was a bit of a low point. <laughs> but 
But yeah, I feel like he was kind of their only option and it sort of sends a different image going from Boris Johnson, you know, a white guy to Liz Truss to Rishi Sunak. Mm. Kind of sends a little bit more of a progressive image, but you know. The, 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 Tories. the Tories there have done a lot for, you know, the marginalised of, of society. It's a very different had, what, party. Three too. prime ministers, is that a woman? And, two. And Thatcher. Thatcher, May. Oh, true. And, I forgot about her. Yeah, and <laughs> now first. Yeah. <laughs> and now the first coloured. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Good for them. So, do you guys think that the UK can recover from this really politically chaotic period? I mean, obviously they will in time. Like yeah. they always do. But, you know, in the short term. Do, is, well, do the they Tories have, or... Or nationally. Yeah, I mean, do they have credibility, etc.? I think they're looking pretty silly. <laughs> That's your judgment. Yeah. <laughs> Over here in Melbourne, in the studio, they're looking pretty silly. I think they broke a lot of ties with Brexit, but it's kind of interesting to see now that they're kind of trying to regain those ties with other European nations. Mm. So, I don't know. I think a lot of bridges have been burnt and... I guess it's trying to, yeah, as you said, they're trying to save face with a more diplomatic, diverse, diverse, all the key areas kind mm. of prime minister. So I guess we'll see. But yeah, I obviously they're a big power and they have a you know veto vote in the UNSC. So yeah, and so do you think Rishi Sunak will last as PM? I mean, we've seen Liz Trust come down very quickly. I don't think it's possible for another one before the election. I think what in which will be in you know, half a year time or yeah, even less. I actually um, should have probably looked that up. And yeah, so I I, I can't see if, if they need stability first and foremost. The Tories. Twenty twenty five. Oh. Oh, no later than January twenty twenty five. Okay, well. That's still a while away. They need stability, is what away. we're saying. I think, and they need someone who will you know stand in the face of adversity and and not back down. So I think that's of primary importance. For, but right do you now. think that's Rishi Sunak? Do you think he's the right guy? I think they've got no choice. Yeah. Fair I reckon, enough. like, we'll know in the month. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if something like doesn't if happen in a month, it'll it'll be fine. Yeah, I think that's Whereas right. Whereas if something happens in the next month, it's like, you know, we'll know kind mm. of thing. But I think you're right. I don't really feel like... I think they'll be walking on eggshells. Mm. Yeah. And, and they'll just, like, really avoid anything all their happening. grievances down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then after, like, maybe a few months, they'll be like... Right. <laughs> Let's do what we want. Yes. That's okay, well, my segment. have we got time for a quote of the week? Yeah. Do we want to just go straight into go it? Go straight into yeah. it. Yeah. We're that right. much over time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, again, I won't, I won't do a fake quote because just of time restrictions, I guess, and my inability to make one up in the back of my head. Um, but this one came back from a little while ago and you'll have to guess the party and who said it i don't think you'll be able to maybe you will but we'll we'll see see. so the quote is i don't oppose islam as a country but i do feel their laws should not be welcomed here in australia pauline hansen i know jackie lambie had a bit of a thing about Uh... this but we've had a jackie lambie one haven't we a couple of weeks ago maybe i'm making that up no i think we did yeah we did no we did we did we did we did have a Jackie Lambie. It's the big package. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. Okay. I don't oppose Islam as a country, but I do feel their laws should not be welcomed here in Australia. I, ju- I just want to clarify, like, like to a... know why this is a weird quote, right? Yeah, because Islam is not a country. Exactly. <laughs> I definitely could be Pauline Hanson. 
I think it's a woman for sure because I think they're referring to like Sharia women. Law. Yeah, I reckon mm. they're referring to uh, yeah, yeah. Um, if it's not Pauline Hanson, I think it's probably a national and someone who doesn't know their geography, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or their religions, yeah, or their whatever. I reckon go Pauline Hanson. I, I, I feel like we have we had a Pauline Hanson on though. Yeah, we've also had uh, a Pauline Hanson, which is why I'm like suspect. So maybe it's so party first, and then it, the. Well, I reckon it might be the Nationals. So is it the mm. Nationals? No. No. Mm. Alright, he's got twenty-seven. Do you think the libs, or do you think like an independent? Or if he said the party, then it probably is Let's go random and, like, just go... The Greens. Full, no. <laughs> full libs. Let's go libs. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. You've got one last chance. Just get the party. Uh, well, it's an independent party. I mean, is it going to be a Labour? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess you can tell us, George. All right. It was One Nation, by, and it was oh. Stephanie Bannister. Oh, I said that in I don't even know who that is. 2013, so, yeah. my God. Well, that's when this was kind of, you know, a key prominent issue yeah, of true, political true. discourse in Australia, so it doesn't make too much. I want to get you, I want you to find one that's outrageous by, like, a green or a person. <laughs> yeah, that well, that just completely contradicts what the... Yeah, to try to find something like that. <laughs> I'm going to have to go into the archives. Yeah. The Hansard. The what? You know, the record of everything they say in Parliament, the Hansard. Oh, right, yes. <laughs> All right, thanks for tuning in to Represent here on Sin. We've been your hosts, George, Mimi, and Brady. You can keep up to date and let us know what you thought of the show on our socials and find us at Sim Represent on Twitter and Instagram, which we have been keeping We're very so good up at them to date. At the we have. If you want to hear this episode again or catch up on any of our old episodes, you can find our podcast on Omni um, called Represent or on Spotify. And remember to stay, stay political. political. You've been listening to a Sin Media Podcast, where young people run the show.